If you guys have your Bibles, please open up to the book of James, chapter 1. We're going to be taking a look at verses 1 to 8, uh, and then we're going to jump to verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, please open to that. Uh, If you have your phones, uh, please turn that on and turn on your choice of app. Uh, And if you're visiting us from home, uh, yeah, just we have it on the screen too, so you're covered. Um, This is the Word of God, uh, the book of James, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. This is what it reads. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, This is the word of God. Uh, thanks be to God. And so, hey, everybody, I uh, just want to say what's up, good, uh, good afternoon, and especially if you're tuning in for the first time online or in person, just want to say thank you so much for choosing to worship with us this morning. Today is actually kind of uh, shocking for a lot of us on, as leaders and as staff here because we have a lot of newcomers today. And so please, if you guys are members of Mosaic on the way out, just if you see someone that you don't recognize, just say what's up, say hi to them so that they can feel welcomed um, as part of our family. And so I'll be kicking us off on the Book of James sermon series today. And I feel like there's only reasons to, there's only two reasons P. Dave would allow this. Either he has a lot of faith in me or he doesn't care that I'm kicking off the sermon series. I'm going to hope that it's the first one. And, um, you know, I was having a conversation with one of our members last week during the picnic, and something this person said was that, you know, he's so excited for the book of James just because every time he opens this book up, he can't help but feel rebuked. That the moment he opens the book of James, he can just feel James being so sure, assertive, direct, that every time he opens up this book, he just hears God's voice loud and clear. And for those of us who who have kind of grown up in church and you know the book of James, I think a lot of us have either two kind of different responses. I think the first response to some of us in the book of James is we love it. And the reason we love it is because we're the kinds of people who like to be told uh, just very directly, straight up, we don't like fluff. And let me tell you something, James got no fluff. He goes right into it. But then secondly, I think another response we're going to have is that for those of us who kind of grew up in a more legalistic church, who've been told rules and laws and regulations our whole life, I wasn't allowed to wear hats or sneakers to service. Um, I don't know, maybe some of you too. The second response might be when we read this book, we might get triggered. And the reason we might get triggered is because James has a lot of should do's and should nots. Do this and do not. And so I think we're going to have two of those um, kind of responses. And actually, the reason we're going to have that response, because James actually, in his, in his book, he writes this. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
And so if you read that verse alone, you might feel like James is not about grace. He's all about works. He's all about rules. So much so that one of our early church fathers, Martin Luther, he wanted James to be removed from the Bible. But I'm so happy that the other church fathers didn't agree to that because the more you understand the book of James, as you hear P.O. and P. Dave kind of unpack this after me going forward, you're going to see that James is actually all about grace. And he's so much about grace that he's not afraid to say, if you encounter a real relationship with God, your life is going to have to change. That's the effects of grace. And once you experience the gospel for the first time, and if it really hits you deep, you, your lifestyle can't help but begin to live differently. And that's what he's going to get at. And, and I'm so excited for us to get into that. Um, and so I kind of want to ask us this question as we begin. And the question I want to ask us is that this morning, right, let's say if Jesus and the church were removed from your life, what's going to change about you? If the only thing that's going to change is that you have an extra hour to sleep in Sunday mornings, and for those of us parents who, who are part of minis, if you don't have a babysitting service anymore, if that's the only thing that changes about us, if Jesus and the church is removed, I think James would ask us the question, what are you really believing in and what are you here for? Because you're going to see that his implications for the gospel and grace is so deep, it, it, it makes real changes in our lifestyles. And I'm so excited to unpack that with us today. And this is James' main point. And I want us to look at verse 1 as we begin to look at what he's trying to say. In verse 1, what James says is, look at the people that he's writing to, okay? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And who James is writing to are Jewish Christians who were physically dispersed throughout the Mediterranean world. And he desires for them in neighborhoods, in schools, in workplaces, and maybe even families that don't value the gospel. He wants to say, hey, you're going to be experiencing a lot of trials. You're going to be experiencing a lot of things that are so counterintuitive to what you've been formed in in the way of Jesus. And that's why he gives us what he gives us. And some of us, we might be in some of those places, whether some of your workplaces, your families, maybe for college students, your schools that don't value the gospel. The message James wants us to have, and he gives us this book to tell us, I'm going to show you what it means to live out your faith. In the face, in light of injustice, in light of unfair treatment, in light of persecution, in light of things that are so against you, I want to show you what it means to live out this gospel. And because the church that he, or the people he's writing to, because the kinds of persecution they faced was so real, James is not about, he's not about high and lofty philosophical ideas, but he's all about real practical faith. And when it comes to the topic of faith, James actually has a lot of credibility. And the reason he has so much credibility is because not only was he the, one of the first pastors of the Jerusalem church, but he was actually a follower of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Um, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might not understand what he's saying exactly, but when you actually read this, this is so important because I don't know if you knew this, but James is actually the younger brother of Jesus. So if some of you younger siblings were compared to your older siblings, imagine James and Jesus. You got James, you got God. 
I mean, that's, I think that's kind of funny. I mean, I was hoping you guys would laugh, but maybe, we'll, we'll, we'll do this again. Um, and, and, that's, that, and so James is the brother of Jesus. And the fact he grew up in him, he grew up with him, used the same bathroom. Maybe they slept in the same room. Like he saw everything that Jesus went through. He heard his preaching. He heard Jesus blessed. He heard Jesus cursed. But still at the end of it all, he writes this book and he says, yeah, my brother Jesus Christ, more than he is my brother, he's God and he's Lord. And if that tells us anything, one thing we should be comforted by is the fact that that means Jesus really is who he says he is. The fact that the person who knows him most would be able to say he's God. In his first message to believers who were dispersed, experiencing trials of many kinds, he writes this, to consider it pure joy in the midst of trials, because we have a God who can be trusted in and who is guiding us. And in light of what we went through this past year, the type of suffering, the type of injustice, the type of unfair treatment, and maybe even in moments of loss that we've gone through, James looks at you and me and says, this is the same thing for you. I've, I was able to, have, to sit with just so many people in our community, some of them crying and some of them just sharing the difficulties of their life, and I'm pretty sure some of you did too. And one thing that I realized was that it's really easy to tell someone and even to preach to someone that God is good and to trust in him when life is just going up and to the right. But when life begins to go down and to the red, it's a lot harder than we thought. And it's this very question James wants to address in the following verses. James reminds, so for you note takers, this is my three points. James reminds us that if you are a Christian, you have every ability to remain steadfast through any storm because you have a God who has given us three things. Purpose in our trials, perspective in our trials, and a promise for our trials. It's pretty simple, purpose, perspective, and uh, a promise. So let's look at the first one. Look, uh, just read with me verse, verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I don't think I need to persuade anyone in this room that, that in this life, we are gonna have uh, moments of trials and suffering. After this past year, I don't think I need to, I don't need to persuade you that our life is gonna have these moments. And even James goes as far as to say, hey, don't be surprised. Because what does he say in verse 2? He doesn't say if you go through various trials. He doesn't say you might if you're unlucky. But he says when you go through various kinds of trials. Meaning in James's mind, the fact that one of the human conditions is that we're going to be going through suffering is a given. So he says don't be surprised. It's only a matter of time before we go through it. One of my mentors, he once said that there, um, in, a, in a person's life, this could be an understatement, but he pretty much says there are three seasons, and the, one of the seasons is that you're about to enter a life of suffering, you're in a, a season of suffering, or you're about to leave a season of suffering. What, whatever that type of suffering might be, whatever level, that we're either entering it, we're in it, or we're about to leave it. And I think that's kind of true, and James actually makes that point. And so he says, don't be surprised, okay? He says, when it happens. But the greater reason we shouldn't be surprised when they come to us is because of verse 1, the Lord that James is following. 
James says, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you knew this, but before the word Christian became a moniker for which we identified our faith with, it was actually called the way. So early people in the book of Acts, you're going to notice followers of the way. So Christians were known as followers of the way. And the, these followers of the way being Jesus, he actually says also in John 16, that in this world you will have trials and tribulations, but what does he say? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So even our Lord and Savior says you're going to suffer. And Isaiah and Isaiah 53 also goes as far as to identify Jesus as a man of sorrows. And the pinnacle, the pinnacle of this is exactly the symbol that we celebrated last week, Easter, the cross. And what was the cross used for? The cross was used to bring about some of the most excruciating pain in a person's life in a very slow burn kind of way. And I don't think it's a coincidence that within the word excruciating, you have the word crucifixion. And this is exactly what we're identifying our faith with, the cross, a way of suffering. And, you know, honestly, uh, for those of you who are new, maybe some of our leaders are right now are like, what a wonderful day to talk about this when we have a lot of newcomers, to talk about suffering, to talk about trials. But actually, I think, you know, why not? Because, again, this past year, if it has showed us anything, is that we're going to go through some really difficult moments. So our focus shouldn't be to do whatever it takes to get out of it, but it should be to learn how to handle it should be learned how to become so rooted in the midst of it that whatever storm we might face going forward, that nothing will be able to shake us. And that's what James is going after when he says steadfast. And so in verses three to four, what these verses tell you and me is that God is in the business of making his people whole, strong, and mature. This is his purpose. And he will even use trials to get us there because it's through trials we are made steadfast. A life of comfort won't prepare us for a life of adversity, but it's when we as Christians have testimonies of God's strength and reliability that we are able to look at the biggest storms and just smile. You know, there's only so much self-help books can help us. There's only so much a financial advisor can bring security for us. And there's only so much ASMR YouTube videos that you can listen to as you go to sleep to get into a peace of mind. Some things in this life are going to require the potter of our hearts, the creator of our lives to get involved, and then to begin to shape the things in our hearts. And one of the ways we see that is through the word that James specifically uses in verse 3. And he uses the word testing. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And this word is actually kind of rare in the Bible. And it only occurs three times in Psalm chapter 12, in Proverbs 27, and in 1 Peter 1, and then right here. And all of these occurrences... They use this word testing to refer to the process of gold and silver being refined in high temperatures for the sake of purification. And this word is meant to describe the process by which something is just, it's just heated and heated and heated for the sake of purification. And what happens when the fire and the pressure is brought on is that the impurities are melted away so that the thing that is most genuine about something is brought to the surface. And what James is saying by giving us this imagery is that sometimes God will put us through a season of testing in the crucible of hardship and trials in order not to break you, 
not to destroy you, but so that the impurities in our lives would be melted away, so that the most genuine thing about us, that is the deepest thing about our hearts and our faith, would be moved to the top, so when we enter and when we leave this season of testing, that we would be shiny, that we would be strong, that we would be whole, so that when God looks at you and me, he sees his reflection. That's what he's after. And like Daniel's three friends in the furnace, what happens when you go through testing is that what you love most is challenged. You know, I think it's really easy for us to say that we love God and we want to give God the glory, right? In, in your workplace, some of us, you know, we have a lot of uh, graduating seniors who are looking forward to internships, right? Not internships, but full-time offers. We have some sophomores, juniors who are also looking into internships. I think it's really easy when life is going well and saying, God, I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to give you my life. God, it's all for your glory. And even for some of us parents to say, God, my kid is yours. All of me, all of my life, it's given to you. Then it's really easy to say that when life is going well, but what happens when the pressure is on? What happens at testing is what you love most is brought and challenged. And just like Daniel, when they entered the furnace, their loyalty to God or to Nebuchadnezzar was going to be tested. And that's the same thing that happens to us in our moments of testing. You know, while this past year, I think we got our fair share of testing, right? All the way from the pandemic, all the way to lockdown, all the way to social injustice, all the way to even loss of people in our lives. And if you haven't already done this, I hope what we can do is that I hope we can reflect back in our life and see what what the season of testing have brought about in our lives. What did you learn about yourself? I mean, maybe some of the, and I'm not talking about, like, you know, the fact that we're really good at binging Netflix shows, uh, the fact that, I don't know, that we consume way too much social media than that's, that's warranted for the sake of our mental health, and maybe for the fact that we're so good at picking up hobbies. I'm not talking about what we have learned about those kind of things, but I'm talking about we've probably learned, number one, that our faith probably isn't as strong as we thought it was. We've probably learned that we're a lot more wishy-washy and kind of tossed back and forth than we thought we were, and that our faith wasn't actually built on, on, on foundation and solid rock. That's probably some of the things that this past year has kind of revealed about us. But in this passage, we see the goodness of God through the purposes of our trials, You know, James doesn't say for you and me that the testing of our faith is so that God can get back at you for the sin you keep committing. James doesn't say any of that. James doesn't say that you're going through a season of testing just because God wants you to know that you're weak and he's strong, kind of like a bully overseeing you. But we see in verse 4 that let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. His hopes for you and me in the fire is that we would come out strong and whole, not lacking anything. And it's after when we go through moments like this that Romans 8.28 begins to kind of resonate deeply in our hearts where, it's, where Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God doesn't bring trials into your life to break you, but he brings it into your life to build you. And I want to take a pause real quick because if we're really honest with ourselves, I think our faith doesn't look exactly like what James is telling us when he says perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. 
And it's as if when you read verses three to four that James is just kind of like, he has this tone of like, hey, count it joy. When, when trials come, hey, be happy about it. Rejoice, it's a good thing. Because when I read this passage, my first response isn't to be like, God, sign me up. Suffering, I want it. Like, yeah, hardship, bring it on. Like, I'm so ready. Put me through the fire. Like, that's not my first response. If anything, I'm like, God, I'm in a season of trial right now. The heat is on. I'm really uncomfortable. I'm sweating, and I want to get out. James, I know you say to count it as joy, but I'm not laughing. And I think what the funny thing is, I, I talk to so many Christians, and, and, and some of the things that they talk about is that, yeah, you know, a prayer that I prayed this week was, God, make me look more like you. God, do whatever you got to do. Just shape me into looking like you. And I tell them, I'm like, bro, that's one of the scariest prayers you could have ever prayed in your life. Because if there is any prayer that God has a 100 success rate of, of answering, it's that one. God, I want to look more like you. I'm ready. Shape me. I'm ready. Look at how many times he uses holistic language in verses two to four. He says, count it all as pure joy. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. To us, trials and tribulations may look like the absence of God and the revenge of God, but it's not because he's making you complete and there are tools in the Redeemer's hands to activate our faith again and again and again and just like some of you guys who work out, uh, I don't, um, but some of you guys who work out, you know that when you work out, mus- you have to break muscles for them to get stronger. And in the same way, James is saying, God is going to use your faith and he's going to activate your faith so that when you use it again and again and again, you get stronger. And I think another, one of the purposes that God does that is because no one can change themselves by their own will. Nobody just changes when they, when they want to. They have to be forced to change. If we could change whenever we wanted to, there would be no such thing as New Year's resolutions. But God brings this on so that we could look like him, so that we would depend on him, and so that we could actually the, be, become the people we've always been looking to become, steadfast, strong, and unshaken. And so the fact that James is telling us so clearly that God's goal is to bring his people into maturity in and of itself reveals to us our very problem. And this is going to be point two, our perspective and our trials. We don't look like this yet. We're not mature yet. We're not anchored yet. And we do, in fact, lack many things, whether that's our character, faith in God, or our ability to save ourselves. And James's response to our lack is not what we would have expected. In this second point, James is going to make the argument that what we need is not for God to fix our problems, but for God to fix our perspective. Read with me verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. When I first read this verse, I had to do a double take because I didn't understand what James meant when he said to ask for wisdom when you're lacking. Because when I personally go through difficult seasons and difficult moments, and when I sat with and prayed with people in their difficult moments, I didn't pray for wisdom. If anything, I prayed for relief. I prayed God to supply our lack. I prayed God to take us out of whatever we're going through. 
But James here, rather than teaching to pray that God would just magically fix your problems, he says, actually, why don't you try asking for wisdom? You know, because we have to ask the question, okay, James, I hear you. What does it mean to ask for wisdom then? Like, wisdom's already such a difficult concept for me to understand. And we got to look at Proverbs 9, 10 to kind of understand what wisdom is because the author defines wisdom as this. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And James, knowing this, is I believe James applied that definition here by, by telling us you need to ask for wisdom because wisdom is the beginning of the fear of God. And that's so important because to know wisdom is to know who God is. It's to remember who he is. It's to have the fear of God, that he's bigger than me, that he's stronger than me, that his ways, his thoughts, his plans are higher than me. And I think James, that's what James is getting at when he says, hey, pray for wisdom. It's, it's, it's as if to say, it's to have a posture that God is up to something that I can't yet see. And I think this actually, the more you chew on this and think about why would I pray for wisdom, if it's anything, it's actually a beautiful declaration of saying, God, I'm not God, but you are. So I'm looking to you for help. I'm not looking to my circumstances for help, but I'm looking to you for help. And I had an illustration that kind of showed, I think it's going to help us kind of understand what I mean by that. Um, when I was eight years old, I had a family vacation to Disney World. Uh, anybody here who likes Disney World or Disneyland? Um, I saw some hands. Um, when I was eight years old, I went to Disney World for the first time. And, you know, um, I remember the sun was setting, okay? Um, it was just me and my parents. And um, at nighttime, when the sun sets, you know that there's a night parade and a night festival that goes on, right? And, and we were rushing. We were at an opposite side of the park, and we had to go to the main area when I was going to see Aladdin. Um, that's the only guy I know from, from uh, uh, Disney World. But when all of these heroes would walk through, and, and I remember me and my parents, we were just running and rushing to get there. And I, we got there, but we were kind of late, and the festival already started. And, but you could hear the music. You could hear everybody screaming. You could hear all the kids laughing, and the music is pumping. And I'm just like, I hear everything, but I can't see it because we came so late, and everybody's already at the front. And so here's eight-year-old Dre just looking out at, the, at this thing, and I'm just like, I don't see anything. I have no perspective of what is going on. And then, but it wasn't until my dad picked me up, put me on his shoulders, that I began to see what was going on. It wasn't until I sat from his perspective that I could see Aladdin, I could see Cinderella, I could see everybody else, and, and, and everything else around me. When I was still on the ground, I heard the music, I heard the laughing, but I had, no, I had no idea what everybody was laughing about. But the moment I sat on his shoulders, what I heard matched what I saw. <coughs> and that's when I began to see for the first time. And I think in many ways, this is kind of what it's like with our perspective with God. I think a lot of times in our faith, when things happen, we don't understand what's going on. We don't understand why trials, testing, suffering is, is brought upon us. And it's not until we can get into a posture of God, clearly you're taller than me, you're bigger than me, and you're stronger than me. Can I see what you're seeing? Can I see from your perspective? And I think this is what uh, James is saying when he says, ask for wisdom. And there's a famous John Piper quote that I want to read for us. Um, and this is something John Piper says. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, 
and you may be only aware of three. Why? Because we lack perspective. You know, and I, and I, I kind of want to answer that question in some of your minds that you might be asking me then. Does this mean that when I have a family who is sick and hurting, does that mean I don't pray that God would heal? If I really do have material lack that I need God to supply, does that mean I don't pray for those kind of things? And I want to make it very clear that absolutely not. You should pray for those things. You should pray for healing. You should pray that if you're lacking something, that God would supply that lack. But one thing I want all of us to know in the deepest parts of our hearts is that God loves you and me way too much to give us what we want when we want it. So today, if you have something you've been praying for and it's still left unanswered or you feel that God is no longer present, I want you to know it's definitely not because God doesn't love you or because you did something wrong that he's trying to get back at you. Verse 5 tells us that God is so ready to generously give you wisdom the moment that you ask. So it's not that God has a shortage problem of blessings, but it's because he loves you so much that sometimes he will wait to give you what you've been so desperately wanting. And he might even give you something you didn't even ask for because he has perspective that he sees and knows that we might not have. And I think this hits home for some of us who are parents uh, in, this, in, in our church, in our Mosaic family. You know, I think if all of us parents, um, we would all agree that it's actually really unloving to give your child everything they want when they want it. That the moment they say, mom, dad, I want this, sure. And if that happened every single time, I think we would all agree that that's actually not the most loving thing to do because they're gonna end up with way more cavities than they do have teeth. They're going to end up with a really bad sleep schedule, and they're probably going to be lacking a lot of discipline and obedience in their lives. It's actually really loving to say no to them sometimes when what they want is the only thing that they see. It's because they can't, but, but they don't know. They lack perspective. And I think that's what makes children children. They don't have perspective. But more mature parents, we do. And it won't be until years later that your child finally understands, oh, that's why my mom and my dad did what they did. That's, that's currently the season I'm in, and I'm sure for some of us that we're in too. And in the same way, this is what we probably look like to God. And what perspective does for us is that it allows us to see what God is after, that we as his children would know that he knows what he's doing And, and God wants us to know this so much so, and so does James, that he gives us verse six. Uh, read with me verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is another one of those confusing verses, and I've heard this passage, and maybe some of you have, in that when you pray then, when you ask for wisdom, or whenever you ask God, don't out because the reason you don't have what you want is because you doubted you're not holy yet you're not righteous enough that's why you don't have what you have your faith isn't strong enough that's why you don't have what you have and maybe some of you heard this and i can i and i, and I promise you this is not what james is saying because in the word doubt it's actually better translated double-minded rather than it is about how much faith that you actually have so when James says, do not doubt, what he's saying is, do not be a double-minded person with split loyalties. 
And James is saying the reason we might not have what we want right now, we're not, gonna, we're not able to persevere in moments, is because we're so busy chasing after two things. We're pursuing after the wisdom of God, but then we're also pursuing after the wisdom of the world. We're pursuing the security that God provides us, and we're pursuing the security our job provides us. So we're too busy pursuing all of these different things and what James is saying for the double-minded person who has split loyalties in our hearts, we're not gonna be able to become, we're not gonna be able to persevere because we have no anger. We're not rooted anywhere. It's not a level of faith issue, it's a loyalty issue. And he's split between pursuing these two things. And James brings us all the way back by using the imagery of steadfast, complete, whole. Don't be double-minded, but be single-minded and know who God is. And see what he's doing and see the perspective that he's bringing us into. And James says if we know this, if we believe in this, we're gonna learn to see from his perspective. And when we see from his perspective, we're also gonna be able to make sense of our trials. That it's for God's glory and it's for our good. And at this point, before we, we touch on our last point, uh, some of you just might be asking, you know, I hear you, I hear everything that you're saying to me, um, but Andre, how do I know that if I put all of my eggs in God's basket that he's gonna pull through? Because isn't that the question we're all asking ourselves? Okay, like I hear you about the purpose. It sounds okay. I hear what you're saying about seeing from God's perspective. I get that. But how do I know that God really is going to pull through if I do all of these things that you're saying? And I want us to look at the promise that God provides for us in the midst of our trials in verse 12 to help us answer that question. Uh, read with me verse 12, that, uh, the last verse of our passage. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Look at the word, he says promised to those who love him. The promise James is laying out for us is that steadfastness is trials, is worth it, because those who persevere will receive the crown of life. So there you have it. He's saying, why should I do this? Why should I trust in this? Because you're going, it's a promise made by God that if you remain steadfast, you will receive the crown of life. And that crown of life for you and me could be a lot of things, bless you. It could be a lot of different things that you're going through. I don't know what crown of life might be for you. It might be financial stability. The crown of life that you and I are chasing for, it might be a child. It might be you getting that job that you've been looking for. It might be a significant other. I don't know what that crown of life for, for, for you is, but one thing I do know is that all of us have it and we're chasing after it, whatever it might be. If all of us suffer and if all of us have trials, there must be something we're looking to, to get us through it, whatever it might be. I will endure this hardship temporarily if it means this is gonna pay off. I'll go through trials and I'll, I will keep looking to this every single moment of my life if it means I'm gonna be able to get out of this thing that I'm in right now. What is the crown of life that you and I are pursuing? And James answers, that thing you're looking for, I promise you, God can give that to you. 
And the way I want to help us answer that question is, you know that word we've been looking at this whole time, steadfast? That could also be translated perseverance if you're reading the NIV Bible, or it could also be translated endurance. That same word is used another time in the New Testament, and it's actually used in Hebrews chapter 12, and it's meant to talk about Jesus and his steadfastness under trial. Um, I think we have it on the screen, so let's take a look at Hebrews 12, and this is what verses 1 um, to verses 3 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. There it is. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter. Again, this author uses the word language of perfection of our faith, who for the joy also uses joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him, look to him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In this verse, we see the purpose of Jesus, we see the perspective of Jesus, and then we also see the promise in Jesus. We see that Jesus himself remains steadfast in trials because of the joy, because of the crown of life that was set before him. He endured trials perfectly. Then now he is seated at the right hand of at the throne of, of God wearing a dope crown of life on his head so that we can look to him and that we wouldn't grow weary. And because he did that, he made a way for us to draw closer to him in our trials. And the, and the kinds of trials we have experienced in this life, Jesus is not ignorant to. He knows because he went through it himself. So again, going back to that question, how do I know that if I trust in God, he's going to pull through? My answer is he already did. 2,000 years ago, what we celebrated last week on Resurrection Sunday, and Jesus knows what it feels like. Loneliness, he knows. Hunger and thirst, he knows. The loss of a loved one, he knows. Pain, he knows. Anxiety, he knows. Feeling stuck as if there's no way out, he knows. And last but not least, death, he knows. Jesus had every ability to come down from that cross, but he didn't. He remained steadfast to the cross and wore a crown of thorns. He stood the test and received the crown of life. He stood fast for us so that we can stand fast for him. And you know what? Jesus did receive the crown of life, but before he did that, he first had to wear a crown of thorns. Jesus didn't just skip to glorification. He had to first experience humiliation, just like you and I are, are, are experiencing in this life right now. And Easter, if it told us anything, what the Jesus narrative tells us is that there is no resurrection without death. And it's actually through death that real life comes and Jesus experienced the greatest trials of everything. And so friends, um, if you find yourselves in the midst of life's greatest trials, I pray you would look to this passage and know the trials you are facing are only crowns of thorns that are preparing you for the crowns of life. And every time you feel the crown of thorns pierce into your flesh, 
I pray that you would be reminded that you are being made more like Jesus, that he is making you whole, that he is making you perfect, and he's making sure you don't lack anything because you have the giver of all things who calls you his child and he calls you his own. From the perspective of a Christian, we can take joy and trust in our Savior during trials because we see his love for us. So blessed are you who remain steadfast under trials. And I'm gonna close right here. So if I can get the the praise team to to join me up here. Um, And if you believe this, like guys, if if you really, really believe this, that there is a purpose in your trials, and that in the midst of your trials that you're not left without answers or without direction, but you have, that you can ask for wisdom and God will actually give that to you, and that he's gonna reveal to you what he's doing in the midst of all of that. And if you can hold on to the truth knowing that there is a promise in the midst of whatever you're going through, if you let that form you, you're gonna become so poised, you're gonna have such a sense of reassurance no matter what you go through, that you will not be shaken. But that's, that's our biggest trouble, right? That's our biggest struggle. How do we get to that place? And every moment, I don't know, some of you might be like, man, that's such a cop-out answer, but honestly, I don't have a better answer for you, but the, but the fact that look to Jesus in the moments of your greatest hardship, consider him so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. The only thing you and I have to do is we just have to remain steadfast. Like, that's literally, you just need to hang in there, that's it. You don't, need to, you don't need to thrive. You don't, need to, you don't need to exceed in life like crazy. All you have to do is remain steadfast in what God has already done. You just need to trust that. You need to hold on to it. And when you do, imagine what that version of you is going to look like. The version of you who doesn't get shaken anymore. Imagine what that looks like. Imagine a version of you who's not insecure anymore who doesn't wrestle with so much anxiety, whether that's the type of trials you're going through. And imagine what it's like for you to have an anchor in those moments where you're just like, man, I know the storm is is raging on, but I have a God who says that I can't be shaken, that my mourning would, would turn into dancing. And what the enemy meant for evil, God will use it for good. That's, that, that's what God is after. And and that's what God is after in your heart. And imagine what the people around you are gonna notice when they see that about you. When you enter the workplace, when when you're getting your cup of water, when the pandemic is over and you're just having a water cooler talking, just like, how was your weekend? It was good, I went to church. Oh, you go to church, nice. That's cool, I'm never talking to you again. Imagine when you're able to have those moments and you're just like, hey, this, this, this pandemic was rough, wasn't it? but I remain steadfast. And imagine what your coworkers are gonna think about you. Imagine what your family is gonna think about you. Imagine what's, what your e-cord group is gonna think about you, what your mosaic small group. Some of you who are discipling, imagine what your disciples are gonna think about you. That when you could be a, this place of refuge and fortitude for the people in your life. Because that's what God is after. And so this is my closing. How you live your life during trials is crucial because it tells the world what you don't fear and that's death because Jesus conquered it. And if you don't fear death, what do you have to lose? And so let's pray at this time.
And so, Father, I thank you so much, God, that you, you give us your word that has stood the test of time, but not that you have only given us your word, but you have given us yourself. And so thank you, Jesus, that you stood fast on that cross so that whatever cross we might bear, whatever crown of life we might experience, that we can stand fast for you. Lord, I thank you so much that you don't call us to perform or to thrive or, or to succeed, but you just call us to remain seated and trust that you know what you're doing. So Father, whatever storm might be raging on in our lives, I pray that you would silence it. I pray that we would know that you're not surprised by it, that you're not scared about it, but you're in the boat sleeping because you have all things in control. So Lord, make us those people. I pray that the gospel would plunge so deep into our hearts Father, that we would be so anchored and rooted that, Father, we will no longer be shaken. And so, Lord, but when we are shaken, I pray that we would be reminded that we could always run to you, that we could ask you for wisdom and perspective, and you will generously provide. So, Lord, thank you for amazing grace. Thank you for sacrifice. I pray that when we sing this next song, that we would invite you, we would invite you to remind us again that you are in control. And I pray that we would surrender um, all the crowns of life that we're pursuing after and that we would wear your crown of, uh, of thorns with joy because it's making us more like you. And so, Father, we thank you, we love you, and we pray all this in your mighty name. Amen.